Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in Hebrews with a message titled, Hardened Hearts. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. reading Hebrews 3, 7 to 12. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, you can see from what I've read that today's study is a warning against hardening our hearts or resisting the Holy Spirit. This passage assumes that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the hearts of believers and that there exists a possibility that we might not listen. Well, first of all, how's the Holy Spirit speaking? A number of people might immediately suggest that this occurs through an inner voice or through conscience or in recognizing some event we experience as orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. But when Hebrews 3 verse 7 says, as the Holy Spirit says, it's referring to Scripture and to be precise to Psalm 95. So the phrase the Holy Spirit says assumes that the people of God have been reading their Bible. And that because Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also speaks to the believer through the Bible. But not just to believers. You know, I was recently engaged in a conversation with a middle-aged man who told me his conversion story. He came from a home in which going to church was forbidden. But he had received a Gideon Bible at school, kept it in his room, and he began to read it. He said he had no idea what he was reading. He just didn't understand it. But he said, even so, I couldn't stop reading. So the Holy Spirit was speaking to him and continued to speak to him as he continued to read. I mean, eventually he got older, found his way to a church, and he learned how to become a Christian and then gladly surrendered his life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit says, I mean, what's even more remarkable is that in quoting Psalm 95, we don't read the psalmist says. No, no, the Holy Spirit says. You know, Hebrews not denying that real human beings wrote the Bible, but it does affirm that behind those human beings was the Holy Spirit guiding them meticulously in every single word they wrote. Yeah, the Holy Spirit says. And through our study of Hebrews, we're about to find another First Testament passage. This one is Psalm 95. You know, and we noted that Hebrews is written to a group of predominantly Jewish Christians who, because of pressure and persecution, were tempted to revert back to Judaism and leave Jesus behind. Now, in order to understand our passage today, let's look at the last verse that gave rise to this passage, verse 6. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. That is, we're the people of Jesus if, and there's an if here, if we hold fast our confidence and if we continue to boast in our eternal hope offered to us in Jesus, you can't budge. But now in our text today, we go from urging believers never to give up to warning believers as to what might happen if they gave up. This is the second warning in the book. And so we're taking to Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is a psalm that was used in synagogue worship services. It's an invitation to worship. It begins with these words. O come, let us sing to the Lord. 
Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, today, we might call that an invocation. It's a call to worship at the beginning of the service. Be singing, it says. Be joyful. Be thankful. Remember your God. But then at the end of verse 7 of that psalm, the mood in the psalm changes. Today, says the psalm, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The psalm assumes that as the worshiper is entering into worship, God is speaking. He's speaking as scripture is being read and recited. And it's assumed that when scripture is being read, the Holy Spirit is speaking individually to people. And when you hear his voice, don't you harden your heart. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Be attentive. Don't ignore that voice. Don't be distracted. Lean in. Listen carefully. And by the way, that's why I would prefer a boring church where a great many scriptures are being read to an exciting, upbeat church that's cool in every way, but where scripture is not being read. In the church, devoid of the reading of the text of Scripture, there is no voice of the Holy Spirit. There are just superstars. But when the Scriptures are read, or for that matter, when you read the Bible in your private devotions, the Holy Spirit is speaking, and don't you ignore that. And then if you hear his voice, we now come to the second part of this text, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And so here we have an example from Scripture. And by the way, all the various historical accounts that we read in Scripture are far more than simply telling us of what once happened. Listen to James 1, 23 to 24. It says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. See, you can't read about the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And look at how they rebelled against Moses and rebelled against God. And then, you know, just cluck your tongue and say, wow, I mean, what's wrong with those people? Rather... We should see what happened to them as a mirror telling us what our lives could also be like. See, in Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit even mentions the places where the rebellion occurred. It happens, says Psalm 95, at Meribah and Massa. See, in the book of Hebrews, which quotes from the Greek translation of Psalm 95, the word Meribah is translated as rebellion. The word Massa, that's translated as testing. But for our purposes, let's do a review, a history lesson. We start with Exodus chapter 17. Israel has gloriously come out of Egypt. Her slavery is over. God has sent 10 plagues on Egypt, with the final one resulting in the death of the firstborn. But all the firstborn of Israel are saved. The destroyer of the firstborn has passed over them. And then at the Red Sea, God had opened up a channel, saving Israel from the chariots of Pharaoh and drowning the most dreaded charioteers on earth. There's so much to be thankful for. Then they went to the wilderness on the way to the mountain of God. And from there, they would go to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where each of them would inherit their own land and inherit the promise of Abraham. And then as they journeyed, they came to a place called Rephidim. And there in that hot, unhospitable wilderness, there's no water. And that, if, if you've never been in such an environment, presents them with a genuine emergency. In short order, people would begin to die of dehydration. And there the people quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water. 
And Moses said, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you test the Lord? But by then the people are furious. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our livestock by thirst and what looked like an uprising to overthrow Moses? They wanted to go back to Egypt. And God commands Moses to strike a rock and water comes pouring out of that rock. It's a river. It allows the entire community of two million and their cattle to drink. Number 17, verse 7 says, The name of that place, Massa and Meribah, it means rebellion and testing. But that incident, early on in the history of Israel, gets repeated much later on. I go now to Numbers 20, almost 40 years later. There was, as had been true before, no water. And as before, they asked Moses why he had brought this people out of Egypt to have them die in the wilderness. No lessons from the past have been learned. But this time, Moses lost his patience. He dishonored God in striking the rock, and consequently, he was forbidden from going to the promised land. But that he, along with the generation that always resisted the Lord, would die with them in the wilderness. Moses called that place Meribah, testing. Now, a person, if you think about it, might say, but what was Israel to do? I mean, there are two million people. Dehydration can result in sudden death. In the matter at hand, it was a genuine crisis. Yeah, it was. But was not their slavery in Egypt also a genuine crisis? And had God not delivered them from that? And had God not made promises to them? They would inherit the promised land. Since it had been demonstrated that there is no power shortage in God, all Israel had to do was stand and await God's deliverance to trust in Him, to have faith in Him. Instead, they complained. You see, complaining demonstrates we don't trust God to care for us. Complaining, that's a sign of unbelief. It's telling God, God, you're not as good as you claim to be, and there's no reason to trust you at all. That's what we do whenever we complain. It's hard to believe the time has come again, but Back to the Bible Canada is closing out another fiscal year. And that means we've already begun to lay the groundwork for another year of sharing God's Word from coast to coast across the nation. To finish well and enter the next year positioned for effective ministry, our goal is to raise $325,000 by June 30th. So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's Word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership. According to Hebrews 3 verse 9, quotation from Psalm 95, we learn that the people put God to the test. We might put it another way. For 40 years, over and over again, Israel tested the patience and mercy of God. And yet God had shown them both his power and his promise. Still, Israel persisted in testing him again and again. They tested him when Moses arrived in Egypt. And Pharaoh made them make bricks without bringing them straw. Then they tested him when they stood at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's chariots bearing down on them. Then they tested him again when they made a calf idol while Moses was meeting with God on Mount Sinai. Then they tested him again at Taborah 
when they complained about all of their misfortunes, they tested God when they complained about having to eat manna every day, and they tested God when they gathered too much manna and said, well, we can't expect God to repeat the same miracle tomorrow. Again, as I've said before, don't you cluck your tongue and say, my goodness, that was a bad lot. Think of these Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews who received this book. I mean, maybe they said we should go back to our own Egypt. You know, the Roman Emperor Nero, he's beginning to persecute us. Well, hadn't Christ done more for them than Moses had done for the ancient people? Had Christ not defeated Satan on the cross? Had he not freed them from the chains of sin, of hell, of death? and of the final judgment. And now when the journey forward was full of trouble with the coming of Nero, they bitterly complained and spoke of going back to Egypt, or shall we say, going back to their synagogues and deserting the journey to the promised land. Don't you see what they were doing? And you and I, my friend, we also are prone to complaining and speaking evil things against God and complaining about our difficulties. For what is complaining but an assault against God's sovereign care of our lives? It was Arthur Pink who said, testing reveals the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. That is, the valley of sorrow and suffering, that valley that we will all walk through, some with greater sorrow than others, that valley reveals what's in our hearts. It showcases the inner state, one that either manifests a trust in our Savior or manifests our unbelief in him. I know. Sometimes we ask, why are things so hard? We don't have all the answers, but we have some of them. These earthly trials are sent to us so that we might lose the attraction of earthly joys and long for the promised land, a land that God has promised to all whose lives are hid in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. So let's do a little inventory. Romans 1.21, it says, people don't glorify God and they refuse to be thankful. Philippians 2.14 commands that we do all things without grumbling and complaining. When Paul was in prison in Rome, he said, I rejoice. But even that was not enough for him. He had to add to that, I will rejoice. He was determined to continue to rejoice in the future. And so we come back to Hebrews, where these Jewish believers were being warned from an ancient psalm, don't you harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness and put God to the test. But still, our scripture is not done. Look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So start with verse 10. God was provoked with that generation and said, it's not as if they sometimes go astray or they sometimes fall into bad habits or they sometimes slip up. No, no, God says they always go astray. That's the unbroken pattern in their lives. It indicates they've never trusted in God at all. You find words like this in the Pentateuch, Numbers 14, 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe? Or how about Deuteronomy 29, 2-4? Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. To this day, the miracle of the new birth, the awakening of the heart, 
to love and trust in the Lord. That's not occurred, says Moses. In spite of the miracles, you don't believe. You never have. Your complaining against God has shown you that you're unbelievers. Oh, my. And then after our quote from Psalm 95 indicates that Israel always went astray, then comes the words, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. No doubt this is a reference to Numbers 13 and 14, which is the famous incident at Kadesh Barnea. After having left Mount Sinai in very short order, Israel has come to the boundaries of the Promised Land. In order to make careful and wise first steps of entry into the Promised Land, Moses sends out 12 spies, one spy, one key man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the spies come back to report what they've seen. And at first, the report they give is excellent. They say, look, everything God told us about the land is true. It flows with milk and honey. It's rich in a spacious land. It's all more true than our wildest dreams. But I wish they would have stopped talking then, but they didn't. They went on. They said, the people who are presently living in that land, they're strong. The cities they live in are fortified. The strength of the men there, they're like the mightiest warriors from before the time of Noah. That is, 10 of the 12 men said that. They said, if we try to take the land, we'll be crushed, we'll be killed, so will our children, or they'll be taken into slavery. Now, one response to that kind of report was that the people could have said, what are you guys talking about? Are these people more powerful than the Egyptians? We saw God decimate them. We have the same God now as we did then. Forward, let's go. But they didn't say that. And why didn't they respond in faith? The answer is they couldn't. Go back to Hebrews 3.10. They always go astray. They always act in unbelief. That was their permanent condition. So how does God respond? He does so by saying, they shall not enter my rest. And the rest spoken of here is the promised land. Rest from constant wandering. Rest in the land of promise. God says, if you won't believe me and regard me as holy, you won't enter my rest. And in consequence, God announces that for the next 40 years, Israel will be wandering in a howling desert until the entire generation that disbelieved the promises would all eventually die. Their bodies would not be buried in the Holy Land. They'd be buried in the wasteland. And their children, the ones they were so terrified would be killed or enslaved, that was the generation that would inherit the promised land. Again, I return to the point. Do not think this is simply a historical event. This is a divine warning for everyone, absolutely everyone. Either trust in Christ all the way to death, believing he will safely lead you home, or you'll continue to complain in the bitterness of your heart and shake your fist at God for all your difficulties. But if the latter is true, you'll not enter the rest. And just in case you missed the point, let's go back to the last verse in our section, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We speak it plainly, for my next words should not be bypassed. This is a word for every Christian. The experience of rebellious Israel in the wilderness, the experience of those 40 years, that experience, that was written for us. It's a divine warning. Don't pass over this. You and I are required to examine ourselves. Is there within any of us, my listener, an unbelieving heart, an evil heart, it's a heart that always tends towards sin. No, it doesn't sometimes stumble and then repent, cry out to the Holy Spirit to strengthen our resolve and give us power to live the godly life. No, no, the evil heart always tends towards evil, towards those things that are forbidden by God. And the unbelieving heart, what's your response to trouble, to disappointment, to suffering, to threats against your welfare? 
How does your heart respond to those things? Look at Romans 8.28, that God will cause all things to work together for your good. Or do you complain and shake your fist at God? Do you say, God, how can you let this go on? Or you could say, God, you have determined that this should go on. Teach me to trust you in this. So consider some contrasts and think about where you stand. Think about faith, then think about its opposite. It's unbelieving, complaining against God. Or think about obedience and its opposite, disobedience. Which are you? Think of steadfastness, never letting go of the promises, and of your embrace of Jesus. Or think of the neglect of those things. Or if you want to think of the words that Hebrews has given us, think of the word hardening, and then think of the word softening. So what is it that you notice about your own heart? Are you becoming more sensitive to the words of Scripture so that those words have become your daily bread? Or over the years, does the Bible collect more dust on your shelf? unused, unheard, unread. How is your heart responding? And if you're finding that you're hardening, why don't you call out to God now and plead with him? Over and over again, pray like this. Change my heart, O God. Make me what you want me to be. Thanks, John. You know, do you find that in our complaining, and we all complain from time to time, but is there an element of disbelief in our complaints? Yeah, I think it's not just an element, it's, it's everything. I mean, a complaint, um, the very nature of complaint tells us that we do not believe. So every time I hear myself complaining, and I've complained often, and you complain, we're all saying, I don't believe. For if we believed, we would know that God arranges these things in our lives so that we might trust him and so that our hope would not be in the things of this world. Uh, We should taste the bitterness of this world so that we don't long for it eternally, but we long for the heavenly world that is to be offered to us in the future. Uh, So look at all of these things and say, this is God's training ground for me and learn to give thanks in all circumstances because that's the will of God for our lives. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is wrapping up another fiscal year. And what a year it's been. God's blessing on this ministry has been so evident, and and we're humbled to carry out the mission entrusted to Back to the Bible Canada. You can continue to depend upon our daily Bible teaching broadcast with Dr. John and his weekly video series. New print resources have been created to encourage believers in their spiritual walk, and more are planned for this upcoming ministry year. New international partnerships have been established giving us the privilege of playing a role in presenting the gospel around the world. But none of these incredible advancements would be possible without the faithful support of our listeners. Your generosity sustains this ministry, and together the gospel is being propelled into every corner of this country and beyond. To find out more about the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, remember to check us out at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.